Welcome to Theologically Speaking, a podcast of BJU Seminary. I'm your host, Eric Newton. How do we think about the ideas arising within us and swirling around us? And how do we minister in a world like ours? If the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, we have to know God and think His thoughts after Him. Therefore, the mission of Theologically Speaking is to have conversations that help listeners cultivate theological habits of mind and heart and ministry. So I am really thrilled to have as my guest today Dr. David Fisher. Dr. Fisher is Vice Provost for Academic Administration here at BJU. Uh, His Ph.D. uh, from BJU Seminary is in Church History and he has led several tours of Europe, Western Europe in particular, uh, on the BJU Reformation Tour. So, Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Dr. Newton. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So, uh, we are going to look back 500 years to Martin Luther. When we think of Martin Luther, we typically think of 1517 and his nailing Um, a document of 95 theses on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany. That was October 1517, October 31st to be specific. But not everything automatically changed uh, that fall day in 1517. In fact, um, Luther hadn't fully developed in his own theology at that point. Um, That was still uh, in the works. So, uh, there were significant skirmishes over the next few years. Uh, for instance, he had a, a debate with Johann Eck, I believe, in Leipzig, 1519. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, he came to realize that they were labeling him as a Hussite, uh, somebody like uh, John Huss, and he actually owned that at that point. He came to understand that Huss's insights were largely, if not entirely, correct. Uh, but what we, we want to talk about is something that happened 500 years ago uh, this year, and that was the Diet of Worms in 1521. Uh, this diet is a big deal, and so it's what we want to talk about today. We probably should start by defining a diet. Uh, this is a new year, and so when we think of diets, this is probably not the kind of diet we're thinking of. So tell us what this diet is. Well, officially, if you wanted to go on a diet, eat worms, and I'm sure you would go on a diet. (laughs) And we laugh at that, but you know, over the last 500 years, people have been making the same sort of joke about a diet of worms. Shakespeare in his Hamlet uh, has some quotes about a diet of worms. (laughs) And uh, so it's something that over the centuries uh, has been a point of... uh, uh, of appropriate laughter. Yeah. But when we think of uh, diet in the German setting, this is, if we would apply it to Germany in the modern context, this would be a Reichstag or a parliament or a congress. It was the meeting of the chief uh, political officials, but in the context of the 1500s, it was not only political officials, but it was also ecclesiastical officials. So in a sense, it was the who's who of the Holy Roman Empire uh, of both uh, the emperor and the electors who elected the emperor and chief nobles, counts, bishops, 
people, representatives, and also because of the person of Charles V being a cosmopolitan emperor. He was born in the Netherlands. He was king of Spain. He held territory in Italy. He also was king of the New World. He had representatives with him from the various spots of Europe. So this was more than just a German assembly, although the leadership was mainly in the context of a German diet. And we call it a diet at Worms, Worms was the city. Uh, Worms was the, um, an imperial city. That means it was uh, given freedom and answerable not to a merchant, not to um, any noble uh, lord in the old feudal system, but it had its freedom under the auspices of the emperor. And the emperor would travel around throughout the centuries, not Charles V, but over the centuries of the Holy Roman Empire and hold their meetings in different towns. And uh, Worms had hosted the Concordat of Worms in 1122 was when the um, investiture controversy was settled. Mm -hmm. So it was in a significant city. So this is where the imperial diet met in 1521, 500 years ago. Okay, so um, what precipitated this? Uh, We often, again, leave Luther in 1517 in Wittenberg, but this is uh, three and a half years later in the spring of 1521. So particularly maybe in the 12 months before this diet, before Luther appeared at the diet in April 1521, what's, what's going on? Why is this such a big deal in the development of the Protestant Reformation? Well, let me back up a little bit, because when we think of 1517, Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the uh, Church, uh, the castle church door in Wittenberg. That, I, 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 if in a, in a sense you could say he tacked with the hammer, he, it, we all, he nailed the 95, but he was tacking it in. And in a sense, that represented where Luther was at that time. He was questioning the practice of indulgence. Mm-hmm. And by the time we get to Worms, he's hammering now with confidence. And so your question is, how did we get there? Mm-hmm. So Luther had questions, um, and in the timing of God's providence in Germany of that day, there was a recognition of the corruption of the church. There was a recognition of uh, a, a new spirit of inquiry and a desire to know. There was the availability of printing. So when Luther nailed those, a printer is going to transcribe them, print it, circulate it. And all of a sudden, Germany's talking, and soon all of Europe's talking about someone that would dare question the church. Well, everybody was questioning the church because of the abuses. Right. But as you pointed out, we grow in Luther's concept of a question concerning indulgences, which is the heart of the penance and salvation issue, that as he studies that, there's going to be a gradual awakening on the part of Luther uh, theologically Mm -hmm. as he's going to break from medieval theology that will lead us to worms. So you had mentioned um, in 1519 the famous debate at Leipzig with John Eck, and the Pope had said, okay, if he wants to debate these, get somebody up there to debate, and let's let's silence this monk. And in that, Eck is going to trap him into a logical argument 
that you're teaching, Luther, the same position as Huss, and he was condemned at the Council of Constance. Right. And that, that, that's offensive to Luther, so he does some studying. These debates lasted for days, right. and so he did some studying, and he liked what, Luther, uh, what Huss taught. And he came back and said, I, I think Huss was on the right track, and, and um, Eck is going to say, well, he was condemned as a heretic by the council. You're a Hussite. And this is going to get Luther thinking, well, then could a council, everybody recognized a pope could err, but could a council err, make, uh, uh, condemn somebody for holding to the scripture? And in a sense, it's going to thrust Luther into wanting a sure foundation for his faith. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be in the papacy. It's now not, no longer going to be in the authority of church fathers and church councils, and it's going to drive him to the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And now he's going to start being very polemic. He's going to start writing tracts and condemn the, the abuses of the church and some of the leadership of the church. And as a result, now with the sale of indulgences it decreasing, money stopping, no longer flowing into Rome from the German states, uh, the Pope is going to uh, issue in the summer of 1520 a papal bull of condemnation. It's a pre-excommunication saying, you have uh, a couple months to uh, get your act right and recant, otherwise we're going to officially excommunicate you. Because Luther is writing, I mean, 1520 was a very significant year because of these tracts that mm-hmm. he's writing. So, uh, for instance, he is writing to the Christian nobility of the German nation, which he's saying that, you know, German leaders should be leading Germany uh, and not the, not the Pope. Uh, the Babylonian captivity of the church um, which, again, is a swipe at uh, the, the, the papacy. In fact, some people, uh, theologians, know it's interesting that Luther's theology is developing so quickly and in a biblical direction that he begins that particular tract uh, with, with three of the uh, ordinances, the sacraments, and he ends with two. Um, by the time he gets to the end of that tract, penance is, is out, out the window. So he really is growing in his understanding of, of biblical theology. And then freedom of the Christian, which he says, we're, we're servants not to the Pope, but to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, to try to put our, it's probably hard for most of us to put ourselves in the shoes of a, of a Pope, but to, to do that, you could understand why this was quite a problem uh, uh, with, with the printing of these kinds of tracts, because they, were, they weren't just about um, theological points that were peripheral, uh, they really went to the heart of the Catholic Church, which again, Luther didn't really intend that initially when he put up those theses. So um, the Diet began without Luther. Am I correct about that? So they, they, they were there for a while, and then he shows up in April. Tell us a little bit about that. Let me go back to the last thing I said. The Pope issued a bull of condemnation, or a pre-excommunication in the summer of 1520. Luther gets that in the fall of 1520, and uh, it, by the way, it, commen- it commanded his Luther's writings to be burned. Luther, in turn, had the papal bull be burned along with some of the other uh, pope's writings as well. And so that's the context going into Christmas of 1520. 
And when we come out of that into 1521, in fact, uh, in January, January 3rd of 1521, just 500 years ago, uh, the Pope issued an official bull of condemnation, of excommunication. Now, in the medieval setting, the church had power over the soul, so it taught. Mm -hmm. And so it would condemn somebody's soul to hell. Mm-hmm. but it viewed the state having power over the body and thus now is asking the emperor who's over the land of Germany to take care of the body, to declare him an outlaw. Mm-hmm. And so now the imperial diet is meeting. It begins meeting at the end of January in 1521. It's conducting state business and part of, again, the German nationalistic pride comes in here, and German electors supporting uh, Luther say, we're going to demand that no German could be tried outside of Germany. Therefore, that's why he's got to be tried with an imperial diet. Okay. And you can't condemn him without a hearing. So now invite him to appear. And so in January, they give him an quote, quote, invitation to come. And, of course, that's, you you remember what happened to John Huss, who was given a letter of safe conduct to go to the Council of Constance. And the emperor, Holy Roman Emperor, reneged on that and uh, burnt Huss at the stake. And so people were saying, Luther, don't go. Right. But Luther said, I will go. And in uh, April of 1521, after a two-week, really a two-week I, want, I don't want to call it a parade, but he was championed on the 300-mile trek from Worms to, or from Wittenberg to Worms um, and stopped at many of the sites of Leipzig and um, uh, the, uh, I'm forgetting the other place, oh, oh, Erfurt, where he was in the monastery, mm-hmm. and uh, he preached. He was, uh, people would flock and walk miles with him. And so he enters the town of uh, Worms in April of 1521, really with a mob. So 2,000 people were there cheering him on, uh, not because it was Luther, but it was somebody now that is speaking up and voicing what was common knowledge of the corruption of the church, but also championing the cause of German nationalism, of, of freedom against tyranny, which was viewed both in feudalism, the medieval church, and the whole system of uh, nobility and all that. So uh, Luther's going to come in, in a sense, with a hero's entourage mm-hmm. uh, to appear before the day. A L- little bit of populism yes. in its day. All right, so, so he comes... And, um, and, and, and what happens? Uh, what, what kind of questions that they have for him, and how did he respond? Well, if you view it this way, here is an insignificant monk whose father was a miner dug in the ground, um, just obscure background, now uh, coming into the city the previous day, and late in the afternoon the next day, he's ushered into a waiting room, and then shown into the bishop's hall. And here is the who's who 
of the world of his day. Mm -hmm. That's like somebody just appearing before the UN General Assembly and all the gathering there, the pomp and the circumstance. And here's this insignificant monk. Mm. And as he comes in, um, as I said, he's hoping to have a hearing. Mm -hmm. That means to give a defense, to talk, to have a debate. Not that the emperor is going to do that, but uh, to hopefully have his eyes open. But he's asked two questions. Mm -hmm. Number one, he looks and there's a table there. And Mr. Luther, are these your writings? And number two, will you recant of the error in them? Well, he wasn't expecting that. Now, he had an advocate there, and immediately the advocate said, uh, what are those writings? And so they listed 25 of his works, his mm -hmm. treaties. And uh, Luther says, yes, those are my writings. But he was sort of taken back. He, he, was, he, he was not expecting just a yes or no. Right. And in a sense, those are trick questions. Are these your writings, and will you recant? That means, yes, I will. Oh, they are in error. No, I won't. Oh, you're still being obstinate. Right. And um, so Luther very timidly says, this touches God and his word. This affects salvation of souls. Um, of Christ said, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before the Father. If I say too little or too much, this would be dangerous. So he says, could I have a day to think about this? Mm. And to everybody's surprise, the emperor says yes. So Luther leaves the assembly. They go about their business. He comes back the next afternoon, and at six in the evening, he's called back before uh, the emperor. And again, he's asked the same two questions. And this time now through a day of prayer and with no timidity, mm -hmm. he's going to now begin to explain, how can I recant some of these learned Catholic colleagues have said, this is good stuff. Mm. How can I say that's in error? Uh, some of it is uh, dealing with ecclesiastical issues, and I would be undermining the church if I would say these are in error. Uh, some of them, yeah, I have attacked people that needed to be attacked. If I did it too strongly, I'll apologize for that, but I cannot condone their error. Mm -hmm. And then he gets into the famous statement that is really why we should remember the 500th anniversary of the Diet of Worms. He said, unless I'm refuted and convicted by testimonies of the Scripture or by clear arguments, since I believe neither the Pope nor the councils alone, it being evident that they have erred and contradicted themselves, I am conquered by the Holy Scriptures quoted by me, and my conscience is bound in the word of God, I cannot and I will not recant anything since it's unsafe and dangerous to do anything against conscience. So here we see the transition from questions at the posting of the 95 Theses now to firm assertion that my authority is the word of God and mm -hmm. my conscience is going to be held captive to the word of God. Mm -hmm. And it's on that that he is going to take his stand uh, there at the Diet of Worms. It's, it's really the moment, at least in my estimation, for the Protestant Reformation where the truth 
of sola scriptura is really stamped on what's going on. Um, there's no turning back. This, this is going to be our battle cry, so to speak. Now, many uh, major events in history, whether it's church history or secular history, uh, they're great in and of themselves, but then the rest of the story isn't so interesting. There's, there's a rest of the story that's pretty interesting in this case. So um, he says, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. And um, so what happens to him? I mean, do they whisk him away and burn him, or what, what, what's next? Well, and, and frankly, it is still debated whether he said, here I stand. Right. Um, but that, in essence, if you go to Germany today through all the Luther cities, German cities that are under Lutheran domination, they all have statues of Luther, and he's always uh, depicted as standing, holding the Word of God. Yeah. So he's going to stand on the Word of God. But um, he. this is late in the evening on August 18th, uh, April 18th. He goes back to his room, and for another week, there's back and forth. The, the real, quote, quote, heresy that came out of this was him saying that church councils could err. Hmm. And that was, he could have ameliorated some of this without that tension. And there were people saying, let's tone this down, coming from the Pope. Uh, from, from the church leaders. Um, but finally, and this is where many, no, I've stood on this. Here's, I'm standing, here I stand on that is where some would say this would come later. But finally, the young, and by he's only 21 at the time, the young emperor um, is going to honor the safe conduct. Mm-hmm. And so Luther uh, returns toward Wittenberg. Mm-hmm. And on his way back, uh, his... Uh, elector, his landgrade, who protects him, whisked him away to Wartburg Castle and for a year, quote, quote, holds him under house arrest. Mm-hmm. That was an interesting detour in Luther's life. He didn't want to be there. He wanted to be active in preaching. Mm-hmm. But in the province of God, God turned a detour into Luther's life to a time of uh, productive uh, usage in that probably the most profound thing that Luther did in his lifetime was translate the New Testament into German, and it's still the basis of the German Bible today. And you think of the repercussions of that year, um, it is dramatic. Yeah, and there's uh, this is another topic for another day, but there are significant... Uh, influence from Luther and, and his work and his theology on Tyndall as Tyndall yes, begins yes. to translate um, um, our English Bible. So a very significant aftermath uh, of the Diet of Worms. Uh, we just have a little bit of time left, but um, we want to spend it talking about some major lessons. As, as you look at all of this and as you've taught this and as you've been to these places in Germany, what would you say are a couple of the major lessons that we as Bible believers in the 21st century should take away from Luther and the Diet of Worms? If I could sum it up of two things that I've seen as I've been to Worms and to Wittenberg. Uh, first of all, I think there's the lesson of divine preparation. Mm. The lesson of divine preparation. In Worms today is the largest Reformation monument in Europe. Um, it is a, a mammoth m- monument that has various people pick, uh, depicted in statues. Mm-hmm. Uh, around the outside of it are key leaders, political leaders, also people that represent key cities uh, that supported Luther in the early stages. 
And we're going to see in the center is a big statue of Luther standing with the Bible. But around him are four seated figures of Peter Waldo, John Huss, uh, excuse me, Wycliffe, Mm -hmm. then Huss, and then Savonarola. Mm -hmm. These forerunners of the Reformation. And I think that monument, in a sense, depicts all the various elements of the Renaissance humanism, the spirit of inquiry, the languages, the universities, Mm -hmm. the German nationalism that is going to have electors and land graves that are going to protect and promote uh, the Reformation, and then the forerunners of the theological thought of attacking the uh, sacramental system and the authority of the Pope that'll lay the foundation for Luther being the right time in the right place in the man of God when the time was ripe in the providence of God. Yeah. That monument to me depicts the fact that Luther is in the place of God's divine preparation. Yeah. And then a few years ago, well, on the 500th anniversary of the posting 95 Theses, I was able to be in Wittenberg. And I saw a picture, two pictures there, that I think also depict another lesson, and that's the lesson of divine providence. Mm. These pictures depict two different scenes. One is Luther standing before Charles V at the Diet of Arms, and I'm sure many people have seen pictures of that. Uh, Luther with his hand raised before the emperor and the other hand on the books, and basically here I stand is what he's saying. That's a very famous picture, but a picture that most people don't see was another one. It caught my eye, and I really studied it. It was a picture, by the way, that was the only time Charles V and Luther met Hmm. in life, but they met again uh, 27 years later, and when when Charles V was in the castle church in Wittenberg, where Luther posted the 95 Theses, it's there that Luther was buried Yeah, uh, 25 years after the Diet of Worms when he was condemned, condemned an outlaw. And we're going to see that uh, Charles V is standing there with his chief general, and he's looking down at the grave of Martin Luther. Now, the rest of the story is the Council of the Diet of Worms condemned Luther as an outlaw. He was an an imperial uh, imperial band to be put to death. But Luther, after being a year in Wartburg Castle, goes back, ministers for 24 more years in Wittenberg, and dies a natural death. Mm -hmm. Charles V is the most powerful man in Europe of his day, Mm -hmm. some would say in the world. He condemned Luther to death, but he did not take care. Why? God's providence. Mm -hmm. Because, again, at that time, Charles V had other concerns. The king of France, the Ottoman Turks, politics in Italy, and he got sidetracked with these more pressing business. Luther and the Reformation is going to take root in those 25 years. And now, 25 years later, Charles is back into Germany to take care of it. Luther dies a natural death and now conducts a civil war on the German states, but it ends with the Peace of Augsburg that says we're going to recognize Lutheranism and Protestantism where 
the state leader endorses it. It shows me again that God orchestrates the events of history, even the Ottoman Turks coming in, uh, the politics that's going on to further his cause. And it's not by accident that Luther can be, be not put to death like Huss or Savonarola, but he's going to die a natural death. And God is going to use the, the authority of Scripture enunciated at the Diet of Worms to really uh, begin a mighty uh, work. And some would say this is the launching of the modern age uh, as it divides the medieval to the modern. Yeah, in so many ways. That's, that's fascinating. So we, uh, we stand here today uh, with uh, a lot of chaos, a lot of turbulence in our own society, a lot of um, needs that we try to meet in our various places of ministry. We can look back, I think, 500 years and see uh, an imperfect man, um, mm-hmm. but somebody that God raised up. He prepared. He prepared others to help, and certainly he used uh, to put this stamp of Sola Scriptura on what was going on there, and that, of course, is uh, the principle that we need to live and die by still today. Uh, This has been a really enjoyable conversation. I appreciate your joining me for it, Dr. Fisher. Thank you again, and uh, we trust that uh, this has been helpful as we've looked back at Luther and the Diet of Worms. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Theologically Speaking. We trust that in the coming days, God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ.